Welcome to So You Want to Be a Copywriter, brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses. Your host is Bernadette Schwert, who you'll find at copyschool.com, and you can find out more about all our copywriting courses at copywritingcourses.com.au. Now, over to Bernadette. Copywriters of the future. If you'd like to stay relevant, charge more for your work, and harness the power of artificial intelligence and human-centered design to help you write your copy, this is the podcast for you. Tate Iskia is a human-centered copywriter and designer who brings customer experiences to life through a combination of design, content, and brand. He works at the cutting edge of copy where AI, design, psychology, strategy, and advertising merge to create solutions for hard-to-fix complex problems. If you've ever wondered what the future of copywriting really is and want to harness the opportunities created by these new technologies, listen up because Tate is going to reveal where the world of copywriting is really headed. Hello, I'm Bernadette Schwert, and this is the podcast for those looking to reinvent their lives as a copywriter and want some inspiration and practical tips on how to do it. I'm the founder of the Australian School of Copywriting and the head copywriting tutor at the Australian Writers' Centre. If you'd like to build a side hustle and work from wherever you want, check out our courses and discover how copywriting can help you find the independence and freedom you seek. Here's a review from Amy Dewhurst, who completed our flagship copywriting course. This course is absolutely unrivaled for quality, cost, time, and ease of access. I learned many new skills that I could use immediately and have relied upon in a variety of contexts ever since, and I so enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, thank you, Amy. I'm so glad you enjoyed the course. If you'd like to get the training you need to become a copywriter, check out the courses that give you the confidence, tools and templates to become a highly paid copywriter. You can find out all about our courses at writercentre.com.au forward slash essentials or copyschool.com. And if you like my podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Let's get started. Tate. Iskia, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Bernadette. Happy to be here. Now, Tate, we'll start with your book because I am attracted to all things copywriting and particularly books about copywriting. So tell us a little bit about, firstly, the book and why you wrote it. Um, Sure thing. So the book is called Copy Wrong to Copywriter. Um, It's uh, really a practical guide to copywriting for small businesses. Um, I wrote the book intentionally for small businesses sort of um, starting out in doing the copywriting thing. Um, um, Really, it's written for someone who has no knowledge about copywriting and just needs a quick practical guide to get stuck into it. Um, It's not a book for sort of, you know, expert copywriters. It doesn't tell you everything about copywriting. It's really sort of a a kickstart for the... um, for starting to do it yourself. And you wrote it a while back, but you've only recently published. Why Why that? Why that time delay? Uh, well, um, yeah, I wrote it um, 
uh, close to 10 years ago, actually. Um, and I self-published it um, about seven years ago. And I self-published it, uh, distributed it, um, sort of, you know, sold it all by myself. Um, it was stocked in one bookstore in Melbourne at readings. And I tried to do it all on my own um, until recently when I went to a publisher and um, they said, we'd love to publish your book. And so now I've handed it over to them. Um, I now take royalties. I don't um, take all the revenue and I'm very, very happy about that. <laughs> so it's the end of my self-publishing journey with Copywriter to Copywriter and now it's going to have a completely new life um, under the the auspices of a publisher. And don't you love those words? We'd like to give you a book deal. You know, every <laughs> every writer would love to hear that little phrase. Um, and I, I particularly loved it, uh, Tate, because uh, I, I dipped into it and I, I just found the lovely grammatical tips so helpful. That's what I really enjoyed because as copywriters, and I'll be really honest, I don't pay a lot of, of attention to the grammar because it's as we speak, right? And you can break the rules within reason, obviously. But every now and then you think, is that a clause? Is that a phrase? You know, and it's kind of like it really does help to know those kinds of things. It's not essential, but it does help to know. So I found that particularly attractive about the book and it's beautifully written. It's just a lovely little pocket rocket just to motivate you, you know, if you're feeling a little bit um, uninspired. But what I'm really interested to talk to you today about is the way you position yourself as a copywriter. And I'll just read it out because I don't want to get it wrong. But you say, I'm a human-centered designer and content specialist with more than 15 years' experience. Now, there's a whole bunch under that, which I'll unpick in, in, in a bit later. But let's just talk about what that human-centered designer expression really means to you. Sure. Um, I, You know, it can get complex. So I'm going to try and explain it as simply as possible. Um, uh, human-centered design um, really is a... Um, process for solving complex problems. Um, a lot of the clients that I work with at the moment uh, work in very complex systems. Um, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of players in the system. Um, there's a lot of challenges and this, you know, tangle of um, problems make it very, very hard to um, make any progress. And human-centered design is a very good uh, way of starting to solve those challenges within a lot of complexity. The first thing that you do in a human-centered design process is speak to the people that are within that system. Um, it's very people-centered, um, puts people first. Um, that often means speaking to the users of that system, so the people that are moving their way through the system, but it can also involve, you know, the people who are delivering the system, um, the frontline workers or, um, you know, the the administrative people around the system. Uh, so the first thing to do is go and speak to them and understand their needs, understand their drivers, understand their motivations, uh, really work out who they are, what they're trying to do. Um, the next thing is... Um, to move through a structured process. Um, so the first thing to do is really uh, understand the problem, map the problem, get really clear about exactly what it is you're attempting to solve. And then um, prototyping. And prototypes can be anything 
from a quick sketch on a piece of paper. It might be a paper prototype. It could be a digital prototype, some sort of mock-up. Um, and the idea is that you put these prototypes in front of the people in the system and you get feedback. And the feedback tells you whether you need to change that idea or not. And you you um, use these prototypes as you move through um, a process until you get to uh, a solution that works. And so the human-centered design process is really in opposition to an old way of working, which is to have a hunch about a way to solve a problem and then put a ton of resources into that hunch and then hope for the best. So it wasn't and still isn't uncommon for an organization to put half a million dollars um, behind an idea on a hunch, get a whole bunch of people working on it. They spend six months of the year or whatever working on it. They deliver it and it doesn't work. Um, and then they just rack it up as a failure. And what they really should have done was make the cheapest, simplest version of it very, very quickly, put it in front of people and get some feedback on it that tells them whether they should even do it in the first place, or maybe there are some things you can do to change it, to improve it, to make sure that it meets their needs. And maybe six months in, you've got an entirely different product than what you originally thought you'd have. Um, but you're starting to really meet those needs that you identified at the beginning. So human-centered design and being a human-centered designer for me is about a process for solving problems creatively. Then as a copywriter, it's about bringing the copywriting skills to that process. Um, so it's kind of two things sort of sitting together to solve problems. That's great. It's it's a really nice way of describing it. Maybe it would be good if you could put some meat on the bones here and maybe give us an example of something you've done recently or even in the past uh, where you've mapped that process and talk about a complex client because that what what does complex mean? You know, is it? Yeah, I'd love to know a bit more about an example of that. Sure. Um, so I worked on a project a couple of years ago now, uh, which I think is quite a good example. The project was with an organization called the Foundation for Young Australians. And the Foundation for Young Australians are um, uh, an organization. They get funding um, to advocate for young people um, within Australia. And they do that through a whole bunch of different sort of focus areas that they work on. One of the focus areas is the changing nature of work. Um, and if they can, you know, one of the things they try and do is understand what are the needs around young people and jobs, uh, what uh, around training, education, to set them up for you know a whole lifetime of an engaged career. Um, a thing that they had been working on in recent times um, was uh, what they were calling the new work order, which was all about understanding um, the skills requirement of young people or of people in general in, in, in their careers. So um, it was about m changing the whole way people think about work from uh, coming out of school and deciding what career you wanted to have, just forgetting that. Like, don't think about career. Think about skills. What skills do you need to develop um, to be able to adapt to changing workforce? And the idea was that young people still is um, are going into a workforce where they're going to have seven or eight different careers throughout their lifetime. Um, and a big part of that was about 
uh, transferable skills. So if you start a job in a particular area and you want to change careers, you're not needing to start from scratch. There are skills that you picked up in the first job that you're going to be able to apply to the next job. And you might just need to fill a skills gap um, uh, in that particular domain, but you can take transferable skills with you. Uh, that's like the first level of like complexity, I suppose. It's just like, um, you know, that's not something that you can go out and change immediately. Like how young people think about uh, skills and about the nature of their careers. Um, the next level of complexity is that um, the project that came to us was actually what they call a consortium. So there was Foundation for Young Australians, but there was also um, a, a TAFE um, down in um, Warrnambool, um, so regional Victoria, uh, a TAFE that was literally delivering courses to young people, uh, TAFE courses, um, to meet particular needs within that region uh, around job shortages. Um, so they were involved and a aged care provider in Warrnambool was also also involved. And for the aged care provider, um, they are needing lots and lots of workers, particularly you know young workers to come into the aged care sector and start working. And what the uh, Foundation for Young Australians had done uh, with a, another provider, uh, which was more about big data and analyzing the needs of the workforce in Australia, was that um, uh, certain industries were shrinking and others are growing. And like one that's shrinking is agriculture, you know, for, for many uh, well-understood reasons. Uh, all the young people are moving out of um, the farms and moving into the cities. Um, and there's, you know, a lot of, um, uh, you know, advances and innovations in agriculture space and et cetera, et cetera. Um, within aged care, though, there's this, like, growing need for uh, people to be in the, the caring industries, in particular aged care, uh, and there's not enough people to fill those jobs. So, so the the aged care provider and the TAFE are really thinking together, how do we build a workforce that we're going to need for the future? How do we start that now, give them the right skills and training and, and also sort of team up together to, to give them sort of industry-specific training? And then FYI coming in and saying, how can we give them a new understanding of their career about the skills that they need and we can all work together to do this thing? Anyway. That's the next level of complexity. Then they um, had a few uh, things that they wanted to do. And one of those things was to build a digital tool that would help young people understand what skills they have and what skills they might need to move into the direction that they want to go. And that this tool would be something that a TAFE student could use uh, maybe before they've even chosen a TAFE degree. Maybe they're coming straight out of high school. Um, and to help them pick a course or to to do to do some training somewhere, um, and so we were brought in as the um, sort of you know design team that might be able to build that. And I think the other thing to explain here for the for the listeners is that um, I work at a design studio called Today, and Today is a human centered design studio. Um, but the way that we are organised is that we have many uh, what we call crafts or disciplines. Um, I look after the content discipline, the content craft, so I have a content team, but we also have a strategic design team, a visual design team, we have a technology team, delivery team, uh, and uh, all these teams 
work together in a multidisciplinary way. So on this particular project, it was about saying, okay, cool, we're going to need a designer, we're going to need a strategic designer, we're going to need some developers, we're going to need a project manager, and they're all going to need to understand this problem um, as well as they can and find their way through it. And there's like no simple answer to this. It's like one of those briefs where it's not build a website, it's make something. Um, how are we going to do it? Um, so this is quite a long explanation, um, but you you start to understand the complexity involved in in something like that. It's a great example, and I couldn't agree more that this is a massive issue. Um, even just talking to my teenage son and his friends and what they're learning at school, I'm going, how is that relevant to life? And mm-hmm. I can't say that, obviously, because that's not a good call for a parent. <laughs> you know? But I do I do wonder about what the schools are doing. I shouldn't really be down on schools. The teachers do their yeah. absolute best. It's not their issue. But it is about the schools are built in the, you know, the what, 1900s for Industrial Revolution kind of kids, and here we are still using the same kind of principles. But let's talk about what did you do? What So, yeah, that's the question. What do we do? Well, uh, if you look at the human-centered design process, you know, the first things to do are understand the needs of the people in the system and also to prototype. Um, so we kind of did a little bit of both at the same time. And we we do this other great buzzword within the design industry, which is called co-design. And co-design means involving the people that you're designing for in the design process. Um, it, what it doesn't mean is giving them a blank piece of paper and saying, what would you want? Um, the classic quote is, you know, the Henry Ford quote, which apparently he probably never said. But, um, you know, if you if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. So we're not we're not asking people what they want. We want to we want to take things to them and we want to get their feedback, their input. Um, we don't want to ask them questions and just get answers. We want to involve them in the design process. So that's literally what we did. What we did was we uh, very early on, we organized for a group of TAFE students and high school students to come together in a workshop environment um, and do some design with us. Uh, and we mediated those um, uh, workshops with tools and with things. Um, so uh, <laughs> we did like quite a bit of stuff. Um, one of them was that we took um, a uh, taxonomy of um, industries and job types that we got from the ABS. So the ABS, Australian Bureau of Statistics, they have all of these like lists, taxonomies, which are just lists, um, lists of jobs. And they do all these other different lists, but they have a particular list of jobs. They also have a particular list of industries. We took those lists and we prototyped a tool, uh, which was just like a simple sort of um, thing you could pull up on your phone and, and hit some buttons on. And um we asked them in that session to find the uh, the job that they've the jobs that they've had in their life, and especially at that young age, it might be I worked at McDonald's or I worked at Safeway or you know, Woolworths or whatever. Um, and so we got them to do that. And I think a really interesting aspect of that was we were able to collect data. So they all pulled out a phone and we got them to go to a particular thing that we got them to find it and do it. And then we were able to have a conversation about it. What worked about that? What didn't work about it? So we're like collecting information. We're having a discussion. And then we're also saying, what was missing? What wasn't there? How did you think about it? And getting them to sort of offer their suggestions and offer their thoughts and and guidance. Um, 
We also had worksheets where we got people to um, talk about, um, you know, where they wanted to go in their career, what drove them, what interested them, um, you know, what were some moments where they really felt they connected with their job and moments that they hadn't. We got them to fill out these worksheets quite visually um, and then we we're able to stick them all up on the wall and look at how people treat things differently and talk about things differently. So we've got all of these inputs and those are just a couple of examples. Uh, and then what you do is you go and synth synthesize all that information. So we took it away as a group and we started analyzing it and saying, what, what's going on here? And really you're looking for insights. What, what is this telling us? What is this telling us about this group as a whole, about where we should go and what we should do? We bring in the client as well, um, some of the, you know, key people from the consortiums and we look at all together. Um, we sort of draw out some of the insights, some of the things that we're really finding. And then we go, great, now that we know this and we have some confident confidence about what's going on here, let's now start designing something or prototype something. Um, and so we went to like very early stage, like wireframing, prototyping of tools. Um, and, um, you know, a, a, a really good example of the multidisciplinary nature of the work at that point is rather than designing some black and white wireframes that then, you know, we we get some consensus on and then pass over to a design team who then design it and then pass it over to a development team. Instead of doing that, we involved developers at that very moment and they were able to build something immediately. Uh, they built it over a couple of days and then we could take that into, into testing. Um, and so, you know, that the process begins and the process starts. Um, and then, you know, I mean, to, to make a long story short, because I could talk for quite a while about it, um, we eventually got it to a place where it felt really good. Then we went through some product um sort of strategy product design what is the product called what's its name um what does it look like we created a set of characters that you could like sort of choose through um the product itself uh and then then you're kind of in the territory of we had to write all the microcopy for the tool we had to write the brand positioning we had to write the the home page for it and uh, we had to do all that stuff but i think that's where the sort of human centered design and copywriting start to intersect which is you know, before you get to doing all the the making and the doing stuff, you need to do all this understanding. You need to understand the needs of people. You need to work with a team that's very multidisciplinary. You need to try stuff out. And then once you start to piece it all together, then you can lean into the depth of your craft to bring it to life in, in the way that needs to be brought to life. Wonderful. And what was the product that you ended up with? What Was it an app? Uh, yes, I mean, um, it, it wasn't an app, um, but it, it, I guess it's a web app. Um, it's sort of a website. So you can go to the website and you can log in. Oh, uh, I think you create, I think you create a log, maybe you don't create a login. I can't remember anyway. Um, you, but you, you like begin it like you're beginning an app. Um, but it's not something that's stored in your phone and you use it. And the whole idea of it is that you go and you start the process and then you come to a final page, final page. And it's like a results page. And it says, here are your results. Here's where you're headed. Here's what you're doing. Here's some jobs that work for you. Here's some um, TAFE courses that work for you. Uh, here's everything you need on a little plate to make some decisions. That's amazing. Is it something you can share with us, the, the URL? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's called um, Pivot Career Navigator. Um, I hope that it's uh, still online. I'm just sort of having a look now. Um, sure. But I'm sure we can give you the link and you can... Yeah, that is awesome. Through. I would love that for myself. I'm still trying to work out what I want to be when I grow up. Yeah. <laughs> 
No, that's fantastic, Tate, and a really good example of human-centred design. And now it's a perfect segue to talk about the other thing that I know you're interested in, and I certainly am, and a lot of people are, which is chat GPT, because obviously what you've just talked about is not just copywriting, and it's about the communication, it's the method of with which you, you know, unpack a problem and now we've got this new technology and obviously that's redefining what copywriting could be and how we actually define problems and how we actually attack the problem so talk to us because I know you know a lot about this uh firstly just explain it for people who maybe haven't come across it sure so chat gpt um what is it chat gpt is a, a new technology um, developed by a company called OpenAI, which is an American company. Um, I think that was, um, you know, Elon Musk has been involved along the way, like he's sort of involved in a lot of things. Um, and um, uh, really it's like, you know, one of the first uh, pieces of AI that has become uh, quite accessible to everyone across the world. Um, and what it does is you... you uh, input a prompt, you ask it a question, uh, and it can give you an answer very, very quickly um, in a human-like way, a human-like language. Um, it looks and feels like a chatbot. It basically is a chatbot if you've ever sort of you know, worked with a chatbot. Um, it's basically like texting a friend or speaking to someone. You you ask it a question or you speak to it and it talks back. It's quite amazing. And who's using it right now in a, in a way for business? Uh, I mean, <laughs> it's a really good question. I think a lot of people are using it. I don't know. Um, it's so new to people that um, I think everyone's still trying to work out what it can do and um, who it's relevant for. Um, I think that, you know, uh, there's a lot of confusion sort of swimming around about GPT. What actually is it? What can it do? Is it going to put, you know, these copywriters out of a job? Um, is it going to help them i mean there's a lot of a lot of confusion swimming around i think um one thing to sort of share about it that i found very useful to understand was that um this particular type of ai is um it's a particular type of ai it, it's not um it's not a sentient um being it it doesn't understand anything um it's not um what you might imagine ai to be which is uh, human level intelligence. It it's actually not intelligent in any way. Um, it's kind of like a a really complex magic trick that's going on. So they call it a a language model, um, not a knowledge model. So the language model works uh, in the same way that predictive text works. So when you get on your phone and you text your mum, and um, you're writing something, all the words pop up. Um, what's happening there is that the the AI technology is looking at every conversation that's ever happened before and saying statistically what word would appear next. Um, and then so it's saying, well, most of the time it's one of these three words, you should pick one, and, and it generally is. So what this is is autocorrect or um, on on what they say, it's on steroids. <laughs> so it basically, instead of looks at the next word, it looks at the whole paragraph, like what whole paragraph of words would happen after a, a prompt like this? Um, and this is why it's a bit of a magic trick is that 
Um, it's all completely statistically driven. It's just about doing really, really intense, comp complex calculations after a prompt is delivered. But the the technology doesn't understand anything about what you've asked it. Um, it. It has no conceptual understanding that underpins it. It's just about giving you back statistically, you know, possible answers to something. And it just works quite well. And this is why it feels like a magic trick because talking to it, you think that it kind of is a sentient being and it does understand what you're asking, but it actually doesn't at all. So I think what that says, and this is why I, I found that useful, is that they've almost tapped out what's possible to do with this particular type of AI, this language model AI, which is just to give you back like what has been said before on similar topics. What it can't do is creatively problem solve. You can't give it a, a, a complex problem and say, you know, we've got this consortium of partners who are trying to solve this thing around, you know, the new work order. What do we do with it? It's, uh, I'm sorry, I don't understand any of these concepts. But what I can tell you is, you know, the, the nature of jobs or something in terms of the way people have spoken about it before. So it it I feel like in some ways looking at ChatGPT, you think, um, wow, what could it do next? What's around the corner? Is it going to start doing all these things? The answer is no, it, it, it won't. And I think a lot of people in the AI um, sort of space, the AI experts are saying, this isn't that impressive. Um, it's not new. Um, Meta and Google in particular, I would say Meta, it's Facebook. Uh, Meta and Google have been sitting on this technology for quite a while already. Um, there's just a lot of brand damage that can happen for them if they release a product like this and it's racist or homophobic or um, sexist or which a lot of the these bots have been before. So they've sat on it. But OpenAI, they've released it. And somehow, in some way, it's connected with a very general audience around the world and has skated those sort of ethical problems fairly well. And so now they've, they're, they're here, they're here to stay, you know, as a leader in the space and, and everyone's talking about what can it do? What can it do for me? How can it work for us? So it's, it's, you know, really what this moment is, is a moment where this type of technology has become accessible to everybody uh, it's not particularly a new technology, but now everyone's trying to wrap their heads around it. Um, Interesting. I was I was reading that BuzzFeed, I think it was, uh, acknowledged that they are going to start using this platform or bot, whatever, to write some of their content. And the share price went up, <laughs> which was interesting, you know. Um, but let's talk about the copywriters who might be listening, who might be at the beginning of their journey and career, and they're thinking, hey, is this a career that's going to be hamstrung? Is it going to be compromised? Is there a future? What do you say to that? And you did touch on that a little bit about the human-centered design. But for copywriters who maybe aren't at that level, Tate, that you are, where you're doing quite complex problem solving and brand messaging, et cetera, but who are doing emails or brochures or web copy, what can you say to them that either is helpful or, you know, inspiring or even, you know, cautionary? Sure. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it's going to put some people out of a job. I think we need to be clear about that, that, you know, um, there's a certain level of um, uh, sort of administrative aspect to writing. I've often felt like this as a copywriter over the years, that sometimes I'm just a glorified um, sort of uh, content entry person. <laughs> like I'm just 
entering information. Like I'm not really thinking that much about it. Um, and it's that stuff that's going to be replaced uh, by 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 AI technology. Um, but of course, you know, I think this is good. And I think a lot of copywriters will actually uh, probably be happy about this because for all the copywriters I've ever known, um, they don't just see themselves as, yeah, glorified data entry. They they don't, that's not what they want to be doing, but often that's where sometimes the work is, you know, let's write 100 um, uh, meta descriptions for, you know, for Google, um, you know, someone needs a hundred of them. I'm just going to go and write them all. Um, really where we as an industry as copywriters going to lean into more is the strategy. So I'm going to be able to do more strategic work. And I think strategic work is going to become more valuable. Um, so what you'll end up doing is defining the strategy for the hundred meta descriptions that you're writing and then writing all the prompts that go into ChatGP for GBT to write it all for you. And, you know, ChatGPT, uh, you know, that business could write those prompts and chuck them in and, and get them to come out. But maybe what they're missing is the, st the strategic element, you know, the brand strategy, the content strategy, the marketing strategy, the communication strategy. What are they trying to do here? And that's that higher order thinking that most copywriters are doing anyway. And I know, you know, copywriting is not just about writing. So that's like 20% of it, 5% of it. It's all about thinking, you know? And so it'll allow copywriters to do more of the thinking and more of the strategy and less of the heavy lifting of writing 100, you know, um, descriptions about something. Well said. I think uh, you've tapped into something that I talk a lot about with my training, which is there's writing and there's planning, you know, the briefing, which you've been speaking at length about. And that's what clients don't understand sometimes either, which is, again, no one's fault. It's just it's a new industry for a lot of people. They're thinking, can't you just write it? It's like, well, I can, but I need to take five steps back and just think about all these questions. So firstly, people listening, you know, as copywriters, you, you do know this, right, that there's a briefing process at play. And if, you, if you're new to the industry, then just know that the creative briefing document is your touchstone, you know, your linchpin. And, and that's what I think clients, if you do, and I love your thoughts on this too, Tate, but when you do talk to a client and they do say, well, can't you just write it in chat GPT? You think, well, I can, but I do need to do some background work first, right? So it, it kind of keeps adding value to what we're doing and it keeps us relevant. And I think it keeps us, you know, in touch with what's actually happening rather than just you know, giving it to a machine to write. But what would you say to to copywriters, again, maybe at the beginning or emerging copywriters who do get asked this question from a from a client about what do you do you use it and why should I pay you if you're going to use that to write the copy? Sure. I mean, I think um every copywriter should use it. I think they should start using it. And if you haven't used it yet, get on there now and start playing with it. Um, and I can give some examples in a moment of some of the stuff that I've been doing with it and, and playing with it. I think around the question of, do you use it and should I be paying for this work if you do use it? I think that um, actually it should be something that people should actively say that they use with clients um, and say, I will get you better outcomes because I'm using this tool. And I think clients will respond really, really well to that. I think that the thing too is that, you know, you really have to differentiate yourself from the chat, the chat DPT, from the, the AI, um, because you're a human being. You, you're not an AI. You're not just 
spitting out statistically, you know, possible solutions to a prompt. Like you're a human being that thinks creatively. Um, and this thing will never be that, you know, that AI people are working on the other thing, the knowledge-based model, but they are so far from that. It's like, that is like decades away. This is this is something else. And like I was saying, this was tapped it out. So it's quite easy to differentiate yourself from it. And I think um, it really should become your assistant. Um, and um, the way I like to talk about it, and I've seen it talked about a little bit, is treating it like your intern. Um, you know, getting it to do certain tasks for you, um, and you don't have to pay it. You know, or you might in the future. You might actually. I think they're they're going to bring in a a business model, um, charge people twenty dollars a month. I think, but but even that, like you know, should be an on charge to the clients. Um, yeah, I don't I don't think um, that should be an issue. And I think too, a, a good especially for those starting out. Uh, this is something I've learned from, I guess, just working in in the in the industry and in businesses for a while is particularly with clients is if if they don't want that and they want just to use the AI to do something, let them do it. <laughs> just let them do it. Because the best thing to do is just to be as clear as possible about who you are and how you do things and how you solve problems. And you only really want to work for people that believe in what you believe in too. So if if they're you know, like questioning things like that. Um, it sometimes can be hard, especially when you're starting out and maybe you need the money. Um, but, you know, I just encourage everyone just to be as honest as possible and use it, um, yeah, to the to the best of your ability to to get more value and a better outcome for the client. Mm, I, I agree. And I think the, the other word that's missing, which you've talked a little bit about earlier on, is the voice, mm. you know, in the sense of every copywriter has a voice and it's you, your persona, your inherent nature, you know, that makes us who we are as copywriters and every voice is different. And that's what clients like, you know, and particularly client uh, copywriters who can adjust their voice a little bit to suit the style of the company, but you still know there's a voice of the copywriter in there. Mm -hmm. And that's something the machine can never um, replace. And I think that needs to be expressed as well, that when a client has a very specific voice and the copywriter is able to adopt that or mimic that, that's gold. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I mean, I had a whole bunch of stuff just run through my head just then as you were talking. Like, I like ChatGPT can do different voices. Um, and so, an example uh, of something I was just playing with the other day is that um, I had um, uh, a pair of toddler's sunglasses just sitting on my desk, and we bought some for my little toddler. And so, I asked ChatGPT to write me a product description for a pair of toddler's sunglasses, and back it came with this great product description and with a whole bunch of stuff in there, um, like ISO standards and things that I didn't even know. Like it's just pulling in all this amazing information about toddler sunglasses. And it really knows about toddler sunglasses, like quite amazing. It's quite a long product description. So then I said, okay, um, could you edit that, edit that down to 40 words? And it did. And it didn't just cut out words. Like it, it synthesized um, and reduced the amount of, um, you know, it, it it expressed the same concept just in less words. Then I asked it um, to write it with more flair. Uh, and so it did. It added words. It added flair. I, I wasn't that happy with, like, with it, but it just, like, it did it. Then I asked it to write in the voice of a toddler, uh, which was really funny. And I wish I um, had 
had it here for you to read out, but it basically said, me want sunglasses. Me want sunglasses that don't slip off my face. Uh, and then sort of continued to try and do it. And it's like, I don't know, was, I'm like, Is that, that's not really how toddlers talk, but it it sort of did it. So it has the ability to, I've seen things people do is say, you know, can you can you tell me this in the style of um uh you know an uh, a 19th century victorian or something like it can do this and it can produce things in many different voices but i feel like what you're talking about there is not about this like very stereotyped characterized version of voice but like uh, true humanity and that's what like i really love about copywriting is being able to connect with a reader uh in a truly human way and to find a way to communicate the things that a business wants to someone to know um, in a way that's like really relatable and actually like meets them where they are as a human being rather than this very transactional relationship that you know a lot of companies are involved in and people involved in all the time. And yeah, that's the thing that it can't do. But I think too that that's where um uh you know, I have this in the book actually. Um, this idea of write hot, edit cold. And, you know, in a way, as a writer, you, uh, a lot of people kind of struggle with the editing experience while they're writing. Like, I've written a little bit and then I spend all this time editing it and I shouldn't, I should just keep writing, but I'm so focused on what it should be. So, write hot, edit cold says, just write, 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 don't edit, don't look at it, and then put it to the side and come back later and edit. And I think what we're talking about here is saying, you know what? let the the AI do the writing hot, and then you come back and be a really critical creative director, you know, or or someone with a lot of taste, you know, which as copywriters, I think we are like generally our readers, people who love reading, people who know what good is. When you read it and you look at it, you go, hmm, this isn't quite right. How would I edit it? How would I change it? And I think that's what we can do as well is ask the AI to do the first draft um, to set out the outline of it, and then we can bring humanity to it and edit it and craft it and give it to the client. And in that way, it's just sped up our process. And I think too, like even in that sense, it's funny, like um, thinking about charging for time. Um, like how is it that if you charge by the hour um, that something that's really hard to do, like like if it takes you eight hours to do and you charge, you know, eight hours of, of your time, what happens if you get really good at it and it takes you one hour? Like the idea is that you should times that one hour by eight because you're giving the same value of someone doing it eight hours in one. And I think it's the same thing with ChatGPT. It should be that now you've found a very efficient way of doing your process, you should charge more for it because you can get just as much value in a shorter period of time. I wish we could take you to the meetings, Tate. <laughs> <laughs> so here's how we justify our fees. Right, yeah, Tate, right. off you go. Um, I think you touched on a really nice point there about discernment. You know, I think that's what copywriters can offer a client is, is a discerning eye as to what is good and what is not. I mean, the clients often struggle, cl- copywriters struggle. You know, sometimes you need that distance, as you say, you know, to see, wow, you think it's good in the moment. Three days later, you go, what was I thinking? So I think that's what we can offer as well. And not to mention that creative strategy at the very front end. Beautiful summarization there um, and nice analogies too about what this is and how it could be useful for people there, Tate. And just wrapping up, what's next for you? What what's what have you got your eye on in terms of the, the world of Tate in the next couple of years? What are you excited about? Yeah, interesting. I mean, I'm 
I'm very excited about human-centered design. Um, I'm excited about, you know, the possibility of um, language and meaning, uh, which in my world I call content. Um, you know, I, I'm the, the content director at Today. Content for me is much more than just copy and writing. It's about uh, channels. It's about brand. It's about marketing. It's about communication. It's about bringing all that stuff together. And the way that we talk about it internally is that um, we use uh, language and narrative um, to inspire action. So language being words, but also narratives, which can be, you know, stories, uh, might even be journeys. It's a very broad concept now of language and meaning and and what it does uh, for for clients or for communications. And I think that uh, content, writing, uh, meaning, language uh, has a, a, a critical role to play in influence. Uh, and I think this is something that the advertising industry really understands very, very well, is that if you want to create a change, if you want to encourage or influence some sort of new set of behaviors or something to happen, we need to communicate things in a way that not only people understand, but really motivates them to do something about it. And when you take that into an impact space, when you're talking about, you know, the nature of work, young people and their careers, how do we influence some level of change at that point? And you do that through a whole suite of communication things. And you 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 connect that to technology and to design and to a whole bunch of stuff to bring about that change. And I think what is really driving me at the moment, and what I'm most interested in, is the role that a content person plays in that um, situation. And uh, content is really an emerging field. Um, at the moment, the dominant uh, sort of crafts or fields are technology and design. And, you know, if you look at any startup, uh, it's mostly driven by designers and technologists. And content is this like, bunch of people in the background saying, hey, 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 we're, hey, we're over here. And I think that like um, it's progressed a bit in recent times. Um, you know, no longer do the designers put the lorem ipsum in and then um, they give it to you and you have to fill the box. Like it still happens, but uh, it's much, you know, like rarer now to see that you're invited to the table. Uh, but I think content people often stand around saying, how can I help? How can I help? They're not often the people saying, we are leading the uh, solution here. We are driving the solution. Uh, we are understanding the problem and working out how to do this. And I think that um, uh, if more content people did that, more problems would get solved in more useful ways because I think content people really understand meaning and really understand language in a way that designers and technologists just don't. Um, and I think that there are specific problems that are suited to content people to solve. So I'm really interested in having a, a conversation with the content community, which is content strategy, content design, which for anybody, you know, starting their career in copywriting, I really suggest starting to look at content strategy and content design, which are two completely different fields as well. Uh, that really draw on, you know, your skills and knowledge around copywriting, but in, in completely new directions. There's a conversation that needs to be had with content strategy and content design about leadership in uh, complex problems and processes about doing it and, you know, frameworks of solving these problems and, and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I'm like beginning this journey of having that conversation and finding other like minds and, and doing that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's like a... 
it's a long way from the book, <laughs> which was, you know, like uh, some basic copywriting stuff that I'd learned from working with small businesses over the years and in different contexts. Uh, and now I'm in this whole new world, which is content design, content strategy, content experiences, human-centered design, multidisciplinary co-design, all that sort of stuff. It's a completely new world. It's amazing. And it's a, it's a great way to sort of circle back to the beginning about the book, you know, but it's also a, a great way to finish because I think what you're talking about there is how these topics morph and these disciplines merge and they become bigger and better than what they were. And it's because we're all starting from the same point, which is how do we influence? And I think anyone listening is wondering whether copywriting has a future or whether there's a concern about it. I think they don't have to listen to what you've just said to know that, no, it is integral to moving forward to any organisation, to anyone who wants to have influence to sell whatever it might be. You know, I think that's a really exciting way to um, to think about where copywriting's heading. So thank you, Tate. It's been a delight to talk to you. My pleasure, Bernadette. Thanks for having me. It's uh, It's been great. I've loved it. I think what Tate has shown so clearly here is that the only constant in life is change. And if we can see these new technologies and modalities of working as opportunities and find ways to make them work for us, rather than hide away and pretend they don't exist, the better place will be to face the future with strength and courage. If you want to find out how other copywriters are dealing with change and how they've harnessed these technologies, join our community at copyclub.com.au. We know that the fastest way to find success is to have a team of people around you who hold you accountable. That's what Copy Club can be for you. It will give you the momentum you need to keep going whilst you're building your new copywriting career. In closing, my joke, because I know you're waiting for it. I decided to sell my Hoover. Well, it was just collecting dust. And a quote, none other from the man who was at the forefront of technology in his era, Albert Einstein. And he said, the measure of intelligence is the ability to change. How apt. Well, that's it from me. All the best and bye-bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Copywriter. You'll find the show notes at soyouwanttobeacopywriter.com.au or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news, where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions, and much more. This podcast was brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre.